How is everyone this morning? Well, as most of you probably noticed, I'm not Bob. He was supposed to be preaching today, but I found out after I said that he was going to that he wasn't able to, so he got stuck with me. And I got to say, the devil did not want me here today. I had a rough night last night. I fought some of the worst acid reflux that I've had in a long time. As I passed the night with it, it was, oh, it was horrible. So it's kind of hard to talk. It's better now. That was kind of a miracle. I prayed, and it just kind of went away. But my cadence might be off, so I'm asking you to be a little patient with me. So this, this might be a little bit of a, of a train wreck, but we're going to get through it together. <laughs> so before we start, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your love. Um, We thank you for the gift of eternal life, the salvation that you offer us. We thank you for your mercy and your providence. And I just pray that you would rest your spirit upon this place, upon each person here, that you would rest your spirit upon me. Help me to speak your word of truth, to not speak my words, but to speak your word, to just be a vessel in your hand, rightly guided. And I pray that you would speak to each individual heart here, myself included, Whatever you have for us, that we'd be receptive to it. We give you all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. I'm going to be transparent right away and say that my family and I don't celebrate Christmas. There's just too much about the festival I see that is not honoring of our king. However, we do love our God deeply. And we seek to celebrate our Redeemer daily. All that to say, you may not hear the traditional Christmas message you're probably accustomed to this morning but you are going to hear about Jesus. Before I begin, I want to read a quote. Uh, Have any of you heard of A.W. Tozer? No? He's a pretty prolific preacher, um, mid-century, mid-19th century, and theologian. This is from his book titled Finding Christ in Christmas. Quote, the law was given by Moses... That was all that Moses could do. He could only command righteousness. In contrast, only Jesus Christ produces righteousness. All that Moses could do was to forbid us to sin. In contrast, Jesus Christ came to save us from sin. Moses could not save anyone. But Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. In another place, when Tozer was lamenting the gross excesses and, yes, the conformity to some pagan practice surrounding the holiday season, he asked, what shall we do? What shall we do? His response, quote, cultivate humility and frugality. Put the emphasis where the Bible puts it, on Christ at the right hand of God, not on the babe in a manger. Return to the simplicity that is in Christ. End quote. We talk a lot about the what 
of Christ. We talk a lot about the when and the how of Christ. But the truth is this. If we don't understand and apply the why of Christ, then it's all for nothing. So why did he come? Why does it matter? And where should it be leading us? I have a book, uh, it's called The Case for Hope by Lee Strobel. And in the first part of the book, he recounts a story uh, from a guy who was in a Viet Cong prison camp during Vietnam. His name was Major Harold Kruschner. Uh, During his stay in that prison camp, he shared about a young 24-year-old Marine that was imprisoned with him. The Marine agreed to cooperate with his captors. The, The prison camp commander had agreed to set him free if he cooperated with them. They made a deal. He became a model prisoner. Even became the leader of the camp's thought reform group. You can probably fill in the gaps as to what that involved did whatever he was told. Then Major Kushner recounted that he remembered the time when reality set in. Remembered seeing it in that young Marine's face when he realized he'd been lied to. The commander had no intention of setting him free. He stopped responding to anyone. He stopped speaking to anyone. He folded in on himself completely. I wouldn't cooperate with the prison guards anymore. And before it was over, Major Kushner said that he just laid on his cot, sucking his thumb for days until he finally died. That happened so frequently in World War II in Vietnam that uh, Allied doctors actually had a term for it. They called it give up-itis. When someone would give up, they would literally die from it. There was no cure. I want to contrast that with Paul. Paul was in prison multiple times during his service to Christ. And the conditions in first century prisons in that region were little better, if if better at all, than a Viet Cong prison camp. It was like being in a dungeon, a lightless, miserable, uncomfortable dungeon. This is where Paul was when he wrote the following from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, starting in verse verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Remember, he's in a dungeon when he writes this. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then later in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. What was the difference between these two men? between the tough Marine that died despondent and defeated in his cot and Paul who had joy and rejoicing. One word, hope, hope. 
And I'm not referring to the sort of hope we tend to talk about so flippantly. I hope my team wins the Super Bowl. I hope I get the promotion at work. I hope I have a good day. I'm talking about real, tangible hope. The hope anchored in the one with power who says, trust in the hope that I've promised. Jesus. That was the difference. The difference between the hopelessness of that marine resulting in death and the hope of Paul resulting in joy and rejoicing. So what's the why of Jesus? To give us hope. To give us hope in a hopeless world. This isn't really intended to be the theme of this sermon, but I want to share another POW story. I read this from a theologian named Tim Keller from one of his books. And he recounted about a, uh, an RAF, a Royal Air Force um, British guy. He was in World War II and he was captured by the Japanese. And Japanese prison camps were just as bad as Viet Cong prison camps. They were horrible. Um, he told a story about one night. It was a work camp. And they would pass out shovels to just do meaningless menial labor all day long. They came back that night and the guard said, where's the missing shovel? We looked around at each other, missing shovel, what are you talking about? Someone stole a shovel. There's a shovel missing, where is it? No one said anything. So the camp commander lined them all up, pulled his revolver out and said, I'm going to start executing prisoners until someone admits to stealing the shovel. He pulled his gun up, aimed it at the head of the first individual in line, and then a young man stepped forward and said three words. I did it. It was the last three words he would ever say. They beat him to death in front of everyone. Later that night, they discovered that they had miscounted. There was no missing shovel. He admitted to doing something he knew he didn't do. That's what Jesus did for us. The difference being that we did steal the shovel. We all did. I stole several. And he still paid the price for it on our behalf. The hope he bought for us was paid in his own shed blood. Now where should that be leading us? To be clear, hopelessness does not always result in immediate physical death. I'm going to read a passage from Jeremiah chapter 18. And as usual, I'm going to read this and let the text mostly speak for itself, but I'll comment as I feel led to. Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it was pleasing the potter to make. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, 
And when he says, O house of Israel, he's talking to you too. That's just a term for his people. Can I not deal with you as this potter does, declares Yahweh? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And what he's saying there, when he detects a flaw in us, he has the right to crush us down and remake us again. It's not a pleasant process, but it's a necessary one. That's a side note. But it's important to recognize that. To be conformed to his image involves crushing. Verse 7. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. That's mercy. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good, that I, of the good with which I had promised to bless it. That's justice. His mercy and his justice coexist. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. He's pleading with the people to repent. He's begging them. Turn away from your evil. Don't make me do this. Don't make me exact my justice. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. We see here that hopelessness didn't lead to immediate physical death. It led to spiritual death and rebellion. It led to a heart that says, what's the point? and obeying God's commandments. What's the point in respecting God's law? I might as well just embrace the stubbornness of my evil heart. That's where hopelessness tends to lead. To a doubling down on the things that he calls sin. So where should the hope, in contrast to that, the hope that we have in Jesus be leading us? To begin answering that question this morning, I'm going to read a prophetic account from the book of Zechariah. Now, this is where the chapter breaks um, that we've added to the text um, can cause us to miss some things, to miss some key context. So I'm actually going to start in chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. Many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. Yahweh will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, 
all flesh before Yahweh, for he has aroused from his holy habitation. This is a prophecy of Jesus, of the new covenant. That's the context here. Chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. I want to pause here. For historical context, Zechariah lived during the time of Ezra. This was during the period when the people had come out of their Babylonian captivity. They were returning to the Holy Land, and at this point in time, um, around 536 to 516 B.C., they were rebuilding the temple. Joshua was the high priest of the temple at that time. He was a real historical figure. Before I read on, I actually want to skip down and read verse 8, because it establishes context here as well. Verse 8 says, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. A symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. That's Jesus. This whole account about Joshua is a prophetic picture of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. First off, this is a trial setting. It's the picture we have painted here. You have Joshua the high priest acting as the defendant. You have Satan acting as the prosecutor. And you have the angel of Yahweh essentially acting as the judge or the defense attorney. Yahweh said to Satan, verse 2, Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this, meaning Joshua, not a, a brand plucked from the fire, rescued and acquitted? I could geek out on this. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the weeds. I love this passage. The angel of Yahweh is a fascinating figure. And there's a couple reasons I believe this based upon this account and the Gideon account from Judges. I believe that the angel of Yahweh is Jesus himself pre-incarnate. There's a couple reasons I believe that. And one of the reasons here is we're told that this is the angel of Yahweh talking. But then it says, Yahweh says, meaning when the angel of Yahweh speaks, it ascribes it to Yahweh himself. And then he says, third person, Yahweh rebuke you. He's both one with Yahweh and separate at the same time. Who does that sound like? The Son of God. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with the filthy garments and standing before him, before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So he's making clear what the symbol represents. The filthy garments represent sin and iniquity. And he says, Take the sin off of him. I'm going to put festal robes on him. This is after he told Satan to shut his mouth, by the way. Satan's accusing him of the sin he's guilty of. And there's no indication in the text that Satan was lying. He's a liar, don't mistake me. But there's no indication here that he was lying. When he accuses Joshua of his sin, it's accurate. Joshua is wearing filthy garments. And still, the angel of Yahweh says, silence. 
I'm going to rescue and acquit him. Put festal robes on him. He's removing Satan's power to accuse. Again, who does that sound like? Verse 5, Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And the angel of Yahweh admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. If, then, if you do this, then I will grant you this. That word ways there, if you will walk in my ways, that's Derek in Hebrew. Derek. It can mean a road or a pathway, but it can also refer to your manner of behavior, your actions and your attitude. I think it's helpful to read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy that uses the same term for context. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him? Ways there is Derek again. And notice that he links walking in his ways with loving him. It's connected to him. That's his love language. Respecting his ways and obeying him is connected to loving him. This is him talking, not me. This is what God says. And to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep Yahweh's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. His ways are connected with his laws. That's how he defines serving and loving him, and respecting him, and honoring him. There's no escaping this in Scripture. It's the truth. It's what he says. And all this within the context of a prophecy about Jesus in the New Covenant. This is directly connected to a prophecy about what it will look like to walk in his ways in the New Covenant. When he's explaining the symbolism, the robes here, in a very practical way, he's telling us that the filthy garments represent sin and disobedience, and the clean garments represent walking in his way, which is obeying his commandments. That's what he's telling Joshua and us. All of this nestled within a clear prophecy of the new covenant under Messiah Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, with nary so much as a hint of an abrogation to those commandments. This is where we tend to lose the plot, though. Despite the fact that it seems very clear what God is saying, those of you that were here, you might remember that a couple weeks ago I said, it's not my job or the job of any pastor or preacher to charismatically or emotionally or theatrically convince you of my opinion. It's my job to point you in the way. That's my job. I said that for a reason. Theatricality has its place. God directed prophets like Ezekiel in its proper usage. Theatricality, though, can be used to very effectively lead people astray. I remember God led me to, to go to a service. I'm not going to drop names because that's not the purpose of this. He was showing me some things about deception. 
how deception is very effectively utilized within far too many churches. And he led me to a place where I listened to a sermon on the prodigal son. I'm not going to go into the weeds on this, but essentially, 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 my goodness. Essentially, the pastor was, he used a bag of pig feces as a, as a sermon illustration that he actually brought in. He had somebody come up and smell it to verify it was pig feces in church as a theatrical sermon illustration. And after the 40 minutes were over, essentially the point was the prodigal son wakes up in the pig pen, comes back to the father, covered in pig feces according to him, and the father embraces him because he doesn't really care about the filth that he's wearing in his presence. That completely misses the point of that parable. Completely misses the point. The idea that God doesn't care about the filth that we wear, the sin and disobedience and iniquity we bring into his presence. He loves us through it. He loves us past it. But the idea that he's okay with us continuing to cover ourselves in it is not biblical. It's theatrical. It preaches smooth, makes us feel good, but it's not true. What would Jesus say about it? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, if you're following along. This is where Jesus gives the parable of the marriage feast. It is a direct connection to what we just read from Zechariah. Direct connection. Starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves. When you see the word slaves there, it's doulos in Greek. It's probably a reference to like pastors, prophets, servants of God that are directed to speak the good news, the gospel preacher. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. They were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Open invitation. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. (laughs) They were unwilling to come, busied themselves with the things of the world, and then attack those telling them the truth. Again, where does hopelessness lead? Rebellion, spiritual death. But the king was enraged, verse seven, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. This is Jesus, by the way. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Again, remember, what made them unworthy was not their sin. He's willing to cleanse us of that. What made them unworthy was their unwillingness. It was their unwillingness to comply. That's where it has to start. 
Go therefore to the main highways, verse 9, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. It's interesting. Both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So again, you have a wedding feast filled with people who are defined as both evil and good. Wicked and righteous. All in one feast. Verse 11, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. It's interesting. Only one man refused to comply. means the evil individuals there complied. And what are they required to comply with? Taking off their filthy garments, like Joshua, and putting on the wedding clothes, the festal robes. And what did we learn that represents? Taking off our sin and our rebellion and putting on his robes of righteousness. That's what it represents, compliance. And this person refused to put them on. He was at the wedding feast. He responded to the invitation, refused to comply with the house rules. Verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Called there is kletos, and it means to be invited. Many are invited, but few respond. So do you think Jesus cares about what we do with the hope he calls us to? This was him talking. And he was talking in a future context. The wedding feast hasn't happened yet. This isn't some old covenant context just for the Jews. This is future context. Do you think he cares whether or not we agree to remove our filth, our sin, comply with his rules, his law? I think it's pretty clear that he does. This is the naked truth. I know we don't like to see it, but it's the naked truth. But we, per- we prefer... We prefer a lie wearing the clothing of the truth. You know, based upon what happens to the man in that parable, we run the risk of losing a lot more than just the point. We run the risk of losing everything. I'm a little nervous about this because this is an unpracticed analogy, but hopefully this will go well. I heard a story on the radio the other day. This guy was recounting a time in his childhood. He was learning to play piano from his mother. He didn't really care about piano, but he was humoring her anyway. He said he remembered one day, she said, You know, there's a scale that contains the best news in the world. It says, scale that contains the best news in the world. What are you talking about? The C major. The C major scale. So he played it. I don't get it. 
what's so great about that? She said, well, it's close, but you played it wrong. That's the problem. You gotta play it backwards, you gotta play it descending. So he played it. He said, I still don't get it. There's nothing great about this. And don't play it yet. But the mother said, well, you didn't add the pauses. You have to pause after every note except for the third note. And he got mad and he said, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I don't even care about playing piano anyway. And he stormed outside. Never played it. He said years later, his mother passed away. And he was reminiscing about her legacy, what he had learned from her, how he had been guided by her. And he remembered that day. He even remembered the pauses that she said to add. And then he played it. Descending, but pause on every note except after the third note. Play it descending, the the descending C major scale, but play it slow. Pause on every note except the third note. One more time. No. Play it like a song. Try it again. A little bit less pause, sorry. A little bit less pause in that third note. So play the third and fourth notes rapidly, pause on every other note. Play the third and fourth a little bit quicker. Do, 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 do. Do you recognize it? You can play one more time. Joy to the world. We haven't practiced this. It's joy to the world. When he played it with the pauses and he practiced it, it's joy to the world. Lord has come. The best news in the world and our only true hope. And if Anne hadn't followed the instructions, practiced the instructions and played it again, you all would have missed it. Without respecting the instructions and following the instructions, that's the greatest news in the world that you would have missed. That's what Jesus is telling us here. He offers hope, but he also gives us instructions on how to apply it. And he's serious about it. So what are you doing with his invitation? How are you responding? Are you following his instructions? Or are you holding on to the filth he says to let go of? That line Anne played from Joy to the World contains the greatest hope and the best news in the world, but if you don't apply his instructions, you are going to miss it. You're going to. How are you responding? Will you pray with me? 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the greatest news in the world that you give us, for the true hope that you offer us, for being so patient with us. You know, you give us instructions, but even when we don't maybe get it the first time, don't apply it right the first time, you're so patient and kind to work with us again and again and again and again until we get it right. Because although you are just, you are also merciful, you are kind, you are compassionate, and you love us. And there aren't words to express how thankful I am for that. I pray that you would rest your hand upon each one of us, that you would speak your truth to us, your naked truth to us, and that we would each have a heart to receive it. Give it all into your hands, and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.